Well, my sermon is entitled this morning, Our Father is in Our Midst. Now, this is going to be a Father's Day kind of standalone sermon, specifically with the intention of helping us understand God as our Father, okay? What other, what better way than today to celebrate that and to remind ourselves that we have a Heavenly Father? And so we're going to look at a text here in a moment. But before we do, because this is focused on Father, the idea of God as our Father and Father's Day, we have to also be in reality with the fact that there are many people today growing up in our culture who are without a father. You know the statistics, the broken homes that we, that we, we see in our day and age, kids that are growing up with no dad, and some of you grew up without a dad. Or if you did have a dad in the home, perhaps he was absent, maybe not invested or involved in your life. And so John Eldridge talks about that in his book. He talks about what, we, what he calls the father wound. All of us have a father wound to some degree. We long for, we ache for that affirmation from our father that we're okay. A boy wants to know from his dad, dad, do I have what it takes? Am I strong enough? A girl wants to know from her dad, daddy, am I beautiful? Do I have security and significance? And so we all carry around, to some degree, a father wound, whether your father is living or not, whether your father was involved or not, because we live in a sinful world, and our dads were imperfect. So just to share a little bit about my story for a moment, some of you might remember when I preached here back in February when I was candidating, I shared a little bit about how I grew up. But for me, growing up with the absence of a father, although my dad was in the picture you know, my early years, my parents were married until I was age 10 and they divorced, but he was gone all the time. He was a workaholic. He worked from, you know, he left before we went to school, before we were up, and he got home sometimes when we were getting ready for bed. So basically, it was my mom and my sister and I who would have dinner together at night, and then I would see my dad's dad on the weekends. And then my parents divorced, and to his credit, he stayed in the area. He didn't move to New York where he was from, where he could have had a new family. He stayed in the area. But again, he worked so much, and I didn't see him a lot. And when I did see him, he was often working when I was with him. I remember my dad, it was like probably late 80s when he got the first cell phone from the car. The car phones, they were these big, clunky phones, <laughs> like about this big. They were huge, and it cost a fortune to make a phone call. But because of this job as an attorney, he was on the phone all the time. And so we would take road trips. We'd go to his house in Maryland across the, the bay from, from Washington, and he'd be on the phone the whole time. And I'd sit there in the back seat. And I, as a child, you, you long to be seen by your parents, especially your dad. You want to know that dad is for you and there for you. And so when I became a Christian at age 17, I really struggled with the idea of God being a father. In fact, I wouldn't even pray to God the Father. I would pray to God in general, to Jesus, to Lord. But I remember being in a Bible study. I would go to Bible study every Monday night and I would hear my friends pray to the Father, Heavenly Father, and I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that because in my mind, I would associate God as a father to my earthly father, and we often do that, and it was through God's work in my life and through his, his touch in my life and, and through growing and being discipled that I learned that I can trust that God is a father who is good, a good father, a heavenly father who has my best interest in mind and so ours as well. And so God the Father wasn't too busy for me, too dist or not distant. He was not absent. He was with me 
he was there. And so that was a really amazing thing that God did in my life. John Owen, the great Puritan said, Satan rejoices when he can fill your heart with such hard thoughts of God the Father. Satan's purpose from the beginning was to fill mankind with lies about God. The Father knows that his people can bring no greater hurt to his loving heart than to have such hard thoughts of him. What I hope for this sermon is to encourage you that you, as a child of God, have a heavenly father. And to avoid and resist the temptation to have what Owen says, hard thoughts about God as father. Because our earthly fathers have let us down, whether you had a good dad or not. It's just the reality of living in this world. Our earthly fathers have let us down. But what we're going to see, I hope, is that we have a father who is always there and wants to heal our hearts and help us understand his love for us. With that said, this sermon will show you how much God the Father loves us and how he delights in us, his children, how we can resist Satan's temptations, as John Owen said, to have hard thoughts toward God the Father. So let's go to our text this morning. If you would turn with me, if you have a Bible, you can look on the screen. Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll get into the message here. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear, you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So I have two points for this sermon. Number one is the promise. The promise that God is near, that we have a near close father who delights in us. Number two is the priority, the priority that he has, that he's given us as his children, that he, he, we are his priority. His delight is in us as his children. So let's look, first, off, first of all, verse 14. Note these strong verbs that are mentioned here. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. The word sing literally means to cry out, to shout for joy. It's an imperative verb, which means a verb of urgency. There's a sense of urgency, like we are to do this now. It's a responsive command. It's a call of response. We are to sing aloud. Secondly, shout, O Israel. The word shout means to shout of applause, to a shout of triumph. Next, we see the word rejoice. Rejoice and exalt with your heart. Rejoice means to be made glad, to be cheered up, right? to be cheered up, to, to rejoice. And then final, the final verb is to exalt. Literally, the Hebrew word means to jump for joy, to jump up and down for joy. And so all of these verbs, these urgent commands, involve our full human response, involving our voices, to sing, to shout, our hands, our feet, our whole bodies. And that's, that, that is what worship is meant to be. Worship is meant to be a response. 
the word worship comes from the idea of giving worth to something as you give worth or value to something. To worship God means we respond. And there are times that we need to lament and be mournful and repent, of course, and be broken over our sins. But there's also times, as we'll see here in the text, that we need to respond and rejoice because God is doing this work. He gives a promise here to his people and we are to respond accordingly. God wants us to be responsive. So the question is, why? Why would they respond this way? Why were they there to sing aloud and shout and rejoice and jump up and down in triumph? Well, because verse 16 says, the Lord has, it's a completed action, something done in the past, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. There's two promises that God has given here that he's done. Number one is he's taken away the judgments against them. The word judgment literally means a sentence, as in a court case that has a, the idea of, of condemnation or being found guilty. It says the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And then the second thing we see is he has cleared away, this word cleared away literally means put out of your path, pushed aside your enemies. And so there's an idea of protection. So let me give you a little bit of context to help you understand what's going on here. Zephaniah is preaching and prophesying during the time of King Josiah. Now, King Josiah was an eight-year-old king who had a tender heart toward God. But prior to him, you had Manasseh, his grandfather, and Ammon, his father, Josiah's father, and they were wicked tyrants. And for decade after decade, Israel was under the, 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 the subjection of these wicked men and they had turned away from God. They had turned to false idols. They had, they had set up Baal worship and Asherah poles, and they were worshiping them. And there was this chaos and this darkness in the land. And Josiah was born. And at eight years old, he becomes king. And it says in 2 Kings, he had a tender heart toward God. He had, he had a different sense, a different mind about him. And that, that is wonderful to think because some of us have come from families where there's a lot of darkness and wickedness in our generation, maybe, maybe hard things, and you got saved. And it's God's work of grace, and you, you broke that cycle of darkness from your ancestors. I was the first one to get saved in my, my family by God's grace, growing up Catholic and having no clue about Christ, about the Bible in, in, in a true sense, and, I, and the Lord did a work in my life. I got saved, and then my sister got saved, and my mom got saved. And, and so Josiah was not like his grandpa, Manasseh, and his father, Ammon. And at age 18, Josiah looks around at, in Jerusalem and says, we gotta do something, and bring, reinstates God's law, and reform takes place, and they start to once again proclaim God's law after decades of being just completely corrupted by sin and darkness. And so at some point, Zephaniah is preaching during King Josiah's reign. Now, we're not sure. Scholars are not sure if he, if he was preaching when Josiah was a little boy, when things were still pretty rough and pretty dark, or if it was after Josiah was 18, when God's word was back in place and the people were getting more in line with, with the spirit of God and with God's law. However it happened, Josiah, excuse me, Zephaniah comes on the scene and he begins to preach 
judgment, meaning the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord. That's the main theme of this book, Zephaniah. It's similar in the book of Habakkuk, the, the book prior to Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is coming, a day in which God will judge all nations, and there's judgment that will fall. However, as one scholar said, the purpose of divine judgment in this book is for salvation, for rescue. God plans to purify the nations that all may call upon the name of the Lord. And so this this book is meant to evoke hope. Zephaniah was preaching judgment, yes, and the day of the Lord is coming, but also to evoke hope that those of you who belong to the Lord, there is protection, there is refuge. And ultimately, this book, especially chapter one, parallels Genesis chapter one and two as God creates everything orderly and makes it beautiful. And so you see in Zephaniah one how God will purify the earth and he will make the earth new. And there's one day, as Isaiah says, and as Second Peter says, one day the earth will be made new. When Christ returns, when heaven comes down and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we look forward to that consummation. So this book is a message of hope. It's a message of looking forward to what God will do through Christ. And so back to the text, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. There's a renewal. There's a sense of hope here. He has cleared away your enemies. There's going to be peace. There's going to be renewal. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your Midst. This is a wonderful phrase. Literally, the Hebrew means he's in the inward part. He's as close to you as he possibly can be. He's right in the middle. He's in your inner midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. That day refers to the day of the Lord when judgment will fall. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. In other words, don't give up. Be strengthened by the hope that you have in this promise that the Lord is in your midst. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, think about what we're hearing today in our culture. What we're hearing today, even as Christians, we're hearing, oh, everything is falling apart and and everything is so bad and there's negativity. And that's true. Things are bad. But we we, we must remember that the best is yet to come. That Jesus said, this will happen before I return, right? And so we're just going along course. Our hope is not circumstantial. Thank God. Our hope is in the promises that we have through Christ. That one day, Jesus will make all things new. One day, heaven will come down. There'll be a new earth. One day, we'll dwell with God, Revelation 21, forever and ever. There'll be no more tears. He'll wipe them away from our eye. And there is this wonderful, beautiful reconciliation that will take place and renewal. And so that's the message here. You shall never again fear evil. Why? Because the Lord is with you. He's as close to you as he possibly can be. So here's the application for my first point. The first point is that God the Father is near to his own. And he has a rescue plan It's already been set in motion. What is his rescue plan? Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew means rescuer, the one who rescues. His rescue plan was put into operation long, long, long ago, even back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day the Messiah will crush the serpent. He 
will crush his head. That rescue plan was set in motion. And that rescue plan will be completed when Christ returns. And the final day of the Lord will happen and judgment will fall. And those who are his will be made new. That is, we will be given a resurrected body. The hope that we have in Christ. Earth, heaven will come down. There'll be a new earth. Revelation 21, Isaiah as well. And so the application is, don't forget the rescue plan. Because Jesus is our rescue plan, folks. We don't have to think like, oh, how is this going to work out? Maybe I should have, you know, A, B, and C as backup, just in case. By the way, God doesn't have a backup plan. <laughs> He's got one plan. One plan. And that's good news. We don't have to, like, freak out and, like, save up, you know, cans of soup and whatever we think. And think, oh, boy, things are going to get, you know, I better have an underground, you know, tunnel or, you know, hideout just in case. Folks, the rescue plan is happening. It's unfolding. Jesus is coming back. The promise is that we have a father who's in our midst. He's a good, good father. He will take care of us. However, it will unfold. We know one thing is for sure. He will not let us go. Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my hand or my father's hand. No one. So persevere. One day, the day of evil will be completely destroyed. It will be done. And there will be only goodness and love. Second, the priority. The priority of God the Father's love for his children. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. There's that phrase again. He's as close to you as he possibly can be. Right in the middle. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. We're going to walk through each of those phrases. But first of all, John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, really brings this out. On This is a reference to God the Father, the Lord your God. Why? Because in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, of another prophet that would come way later, it's the last book of the Old Testament, this is what God says through, through his prophet Malachi to the priests, the Levites. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, this is God speaking, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, have we how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So God is showing his personal attachment to his people by saying, I am your father, but you're not treating me like that. The word father in the ancient language in Greek and Latin is pater. We get our word patriarch from this, meaning I am the master. I am the one who is over the home. I am the head, and you're not treating me like a father. And here we see in Zephaniah, it says that the Lord your God is in your midst. He's saying, I'm with you. You're my kids. You're mine. I mean, what a good parent does everything they can for their kids, right? You do everything. You give yourself, especially moms, give everything for your kids. Here we see in a very difficult day in which Zephaniah was preaching and prophesying, the Lord says, I am close to you. I am in your midst. John Owen says, let us then... Let us therefore not see the Father as full of love to us, 
Do not see the Father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the Father as one who from eternity has always had kind thoughts toward us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from him. So what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We're familiar with that. 20 times he uses the, the word father, most reference to heavenly father. And the word father is always used with a personal pronoun, your father, our father, my father. And what was Jesus doing? Teaching us how to pray, his disciples how to pray, our father who art in heaven, right? We know that prayer. He was reframing, if you will, who God is as a father. Why? Because in Jesus's day, just like in our day, People had a father wound. You better believe there was absent fathers in Jesus' day. Or they were killed in war. And there was lots of stress because the Roman Empire was very oppressive. And so dads had a lot of burden to bear as they tried to make ends meet for their families. And so as Jesus is preaching, he's using this phrase, father, 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 to help them reframe what it means to know God as Father. And then we have the parable of the prodigal son. Very familiar parable, Luke chapter 15. And I want to just mention this for a moment as a, as a parallel, as, a, as kind of a side note here to the significance of God being a Father. Jesus would often share truth about the kingdom of God through a story, through a parable. And so he tells a story. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. In other words, Father, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance. He had two sons, so that inheritance was split in two. And so the son, the younger son, basically said, I want what is mine as if you were not alive anymore. Give it to me. And the father agreed. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. That's an important phrase. He got as far, as way, far away as he possibly could, right? He wanted it away from his father, a far country. And there he squandered his property. In other words, he blew it all. All the inheritance he had, he squandered it in reckless Living. This story is played out again and again, generation after generation. All of us, to some degree, are prodigals, right? So basically, he goes as far as away as he possibly can, squanders his income or the, the money he had with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. So to make matters worse, he's got no money, and now a famine is in the land. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. We know it's a Gentile country because there's a reference to pigs. Jewish people and pigs don't mix. So he hired, hired out, was hired out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to, into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing. The word, cra is, the word literally is craving, desiring intensely to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He's at the lowest of the low, folks. Some of us have been there, or we know people 
whom we love that are there now. And no one gave him anything. So he's no money. He's starving. He's alone. He's at the very bottom. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, important phrase, when he woke up, that's, do we not pray for those that we, have, that, we have, that we love that are prodigals in our lives? Do we not pray for this? Lord, wake them up. Let them see how destitute they are without you. When he, woke, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, literally slaves, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He had a, a speech prepared, and he probably memorized it. In other words, he's saying, Dad, I blew it. I mean, I really blew it. And so I am no longer worthy to be your son. In fact, that's okay. Just make me a slave. Just let me come back home. Let me have shelter. Let me have some kind of place where I belong. I'll just be a slave. And he arose and came to his father. Now listen to this. But while he was still a long way off. Remember the last phrase, far country, long way off. Originally, the son wanted to get as far away from his dad as possible. And when he's coming home, he's still a long way off. His father saw him. God sees the prodigals, folks. He sees us. He sees our sinfulness and our destitution he sees it all. But what does he do here? Father saw him and felt compassion. The Greek word for compassion literally means our internal organs, the, the, a sense of like in our gut. He felt it. He felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Now, a patriarch in the ancient society would not run. No way, because they had long flowing robes. In order to run, you'd have to pull up your robe. Thus the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. For him to run, he would have to pull up his robe and literally, so he was not encumbered by, by the robe. And he, he ran, I mean, he bolted toward his son. And what does he do? He embraced him and kissed him. Now, those of you that are dads out there, whether you have young kids or older, dads need to embrace their kids and kiss them. And be affectionate. Some of you grew up in homes that didn't, you didn't have affection. I grew up in a home where I didn't have that affection. I wasn't told, I'm proud of you. You're my boy. I love you. Hug, kisses. I didn't have that. Angie's family is very much like that. So when I met Angie and we got engaged and I, her family, Italian family, they're like hugging me and kissing me. I'm like, bring it on. Because <laughs> I just, we're, we, we start, we're starving for that affection, are we not? I mean, let's just be real and honest. Every, every child, every human being wants to be told that they're valued and loved and hugged and, and to be affectionate with. And so the dad embraces him. I mean, he just gives him a big old hug and he kisses him. And, this, and the son said to him, Father, he, he begins his speech, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and, I, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The father didn't even hear his son's speech. Didn't even hear it. Put it on him and put a ring on his, thing, on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring a fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. They didn't even hear the speech. What is Jesus doing here in this story? He's reframing for us who God the Father is. You see, we think that because we blow it, and by the way, we blow it all the time, do we not? We think because we don't measure up that God the Father is gonna wag his finger and say, ah, you blew it again. And if you grew up in a context like I did, going to Catholic church and and living in a performance-driven family that I lived in, you really feel that. And it was a big struggle for me. I'm like, oh man, I'm really blowing it. God's gonna turn his back on me any moment. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. That's what grace is, folks. You hear it a lot at this church, and it's wonderful because we have a gospel of grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Did that prodigal deserve the embrace and the kisses and the the fattened cap and the robe and the ring? You better believe he didn't deserve it. So what is Jesus doing? He's reframing. He says, this is God the Father. He's, He's telling this story so that we understand what kind of father we have who does not condemn us and wag his finger at us and say, ah, you blew it again. But he says, you're my boy. You're my girl. Let me put a robe of grace around you. Let me put a ring on your finger to signify that we are owned or have belonging with him. And so we need to understand how important and significant God the Father is and how Jesus helps us reframe that. So let's go back to our text. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. We already talked about that. He is as close as possibly he can be. Secondly, he's a mighty one who will save. Literally, the Hebrew here is he is a victorious warrior. The phrase has the idea of a liberator, one who will rescue. And by the way, Jesus, Yeshua, means rescuer, the one who rescues. Next we see, it says that, He will rejoice over you with gladness. This idea of rejoicing with gladness means he will exalt over you. He will display his joy. He will display his joy for you because you're his. The thought of you to the father brings joy to his heart, so much so that he has to announce it. He cannot contain it. You know when you're you're watching your kids, maybe they're doing a recital or they're singing or they're playing an instrument or they're playing a sport, you know, sport, doing a sporting event or whatever, and you're like, hey, that's, my, that's mine. That's my boy. That's my girl. You know, or just in general in your home, you know, with family or friends, you're like, oh, that's mine. You're proud of them. You want to tell people that this is yours, your child. So God the Father is announcing. He's rejoicing over his children with gladness. And then next phrase, he will quiet you by his love. The King King James Version says he will rest in his love. John Owen says literally the Hebrew here means he shall be silent because of his love. To rest with contentment is expressed by being silent. That is without grumbling and complaining. Because God's love is so full, so perfect, and absolute, it will not allow him to complain of anything in them, those whom he loves. So he is silent. When God is said to rest in his love, it means he is satisfied with the object of his love and will not seek for a more satisfying object to love. He's content. He's quiet. 
in his love toward us because we're his. It delights the Father's heart that we are his. Jesus prayed for, for us. He prayed in John chapter 17, Father, protect them. Father them. They're yours, and you've given them to me. And so the Father delights in us, and he's so content, so perfect and absolute, as Owen says, he would not allow him to complain of anything in those whom he loves. And the final phrase is, he will exalt over you with loud singing. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Same Hebrew word as in Zephaniah 3, 17 here. The idea of is, is denoting shouting of joy. It literally means a ringing cry, a proclamation, a praise. Have you ever thought about that God sings over his own? He sings over us. C.S. Lewis, I believe, captured this in his book, The Magician's Nephew, one of the Chronicles of Narnia series books. There's seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Magician's Nephew, he de depicts Aslan, who's the, the Christ figure, as creating Narnia through song. And so Aslan is singing these beautiful melodies, and as he's singing, things are coming to life. Color is beginning to come into picture, and the oceans are beginning to rage, and the mountains are formed. He's singing. And so here we see God the Father, God sings over us with not little whispers, not like <laughs> loud singing. <laughs> and there's something to say. There's times when we need to sing loudly, folks. And some of you may be like, oh, I can't sing. That's okay. We sing loud because we're responding to God's grace and goodness. We respond through singing. It's the Gettys, they're a wonderful couple who, who write songs, Christian or hymns and, and, and praises. They say this, we are created to sing because it leads us joyfully to the great singer, creator of heaven and earth. God the Father sings over you. Think about that. So when you're singing loudly in the shower, remember that. <laughs> When you're singing loudly in the car and no one's around, maybe the guy next to you is like, huh? Really? Yeah. But you're singing with all your might. Remember that God does the same with you. He sings over you. So sing, folks. Sing. Let it out. Let your hair down. Just let go. Don't, don't be like, oh, what does what so-and-so think about me? What about this? And what? Who cares? Right? Who cares about that? This is about you and God. This is about giving praise to God. God's your father. Jesus is your savior. And so here we see, he will exalt over you with loud singing. So let me conclude with some application. The question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, so what does this mean? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, I think we can apply it in a couple, couple things, three things actually. Number one is we have a father who is in our midst. If you get nothing from this sermon, get this. God the father is not distant from you. He's not absent. He's not aloof. He's not unaware. He's not too busy. He's not preoccupied, distracted. Sometimes as a dad, I can get too preoccupied. I can get kind of stuck in my head, and my kids are like longing for my attention and wanting me to be with them. And I'm like, oh, yeah, shift gears. What do kids want? What, do, what does anybody want? To be loved and seen. They just want to feel like they're seen. You're seen. 
God the Father sees you. Jesus makes that very clear in the prodigal son story. He makes that very clear when he teaches about the Father. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we can cry out, Abba. You know what the word Abba means? It's an Aramaic word that means daddy. It's the most affectionate term we can say, daddy, Abba. We can cry out, Abba, Father, because we are led by the Spirit. We're sons of God, sons and daughters of God. We can cry out, Abba, Father. We have a dad, a father in heaven who is near in our midst. Number two, we have a father who will show up, who is there for us, who is our hero who will sing over us, who will be quiet in his love for us because here we see in the text, he's not only in our midst, but he rejoices over you. He shouts his applause over you. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He is there. He's the dad cheering for you on the stands, (laughs) right? Maybe you didn't feel like, as you grew up, you didn't feel like you had anybody cheering for you. You kind of had to navigate life by yourself and you had to figure this thing called life out with kind of feeling invisible. Like, well, I guess I just gotta pull up my own bootstraps and make it myself because no one's really helping me or helping me navigate this whole thing. Guess what? God the Father sees you. And if we turn to him and we look to the Holy Spirit for our comfort and counsel, he will direct our paths. That father wound can be healed through the heavenly father's touch in our lives. I know it personally, my personal experience, and I know some of you have as well. He is there. He will show up. He he is the one who is our hero, who sings over us, who rejoices over us. And finally, and this is the application challenge, the question is this, will we receive this fatherly love from God the Father? John Owen says this, we must receive, respond to the love of the Father, and we must show gratitude and love to the Father. You see, this will mean nothing if you're just like hard, hard and saying, well, you know what? God doesn't love me. I've done too many bad things. I've done this. I've done that. And you just let that, that shame is just piled up on you like giant boulders and your heart is hard. Then there's no way God the Father can love you because you're not receptive to that love. The only way to understand this is to receive it. That's why Jesus told that, par- that parable parable of the prodigal son, because he said, the father will run to you, but you've got to come to your senses and go back. You have to turn away from your destructive, reckless living and turn back. There is a way, but it's the way, the only way back to the father. And that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rescuer. The rescue plan was set in motion. The question is, will you Respond to the rescue plan. Are you going to be like, no, I got this. I'll do this my own way. You you know, you meet so many people today in our day and age that say, you know what? I got this whole thing. Or I I can be religious. I can be spiritual. I can be this and that enlightened. But they're trying to navigate life. They're trying to do it by their own, in their own strength. Folks, it does not work. You know that. I know that. And so the rescue plan is available, but we've got to receive it. And so here on Father's Day, This message, here we see in this text, this is the truth. This is the priority. This is the promise, excuse me, and this is the priority. The question is, will you receive it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you're valued and loved by God the Father, that he sees you, and that he sees you in such a way that it says in John 3, 16, we know this text, that for God so loved the world that he 
gave. How do we know someone loves us? They give, right? Unconditional, they give. God the Father gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the God that we know, that we serve, that we have, God the Father. He gave it all. He gave Jesus. He put the rescue plan in place, and that rescue plan is still in place. The question is, will we receive it? During our closing song here this morning, we're going to sing, Good, Good Father, and we're going to respond to God's fatherly care for us through singing. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted this rescue plan, meaning you've not embraced this reality of Christ being the rescuer and God the Father who loves his children so much that he sent the rescuer, Jesus, to rescue us, then this morning, receive it. What a gift that you can give your children, your grandchildren, is that of Christ. Or if you're here and maybe you just need to kind of give yourself again to, res- to the rescuer, to Christ, and you want to just, you have the sense of like, I've just been kind of off lately. We all get off, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. <laughs> Prone to leave the God I love. If you're off this morning, then respond and say, Lord Jesus, be my rescuer. God the Father, help me to see you as my heavenly Father. Put away the baggage that you have of your earthly father or your earthly experience and and see God the Father as he truly is, completely attached and loving to you. So reframe that this morning. Give yourself that gift, if you will, by understanding that truth and letting it sink into your heart. So respond, if you will, this morning according to God's word. Let's pray together and then we'll do our last song. Lord God, you are a good good father. Jesus, we're so thankful as you walked on this earth, you reframed for us your heavenly father. You taught us how to pray. You taught us how to think about the father. You told stories like the prodigal son, the story of a father who ran to his destitute prodigal son who embraced us, who kissed us, who with open arms gave us that reception, that banquet, and that's grace right there. I pray if anybody's here this morning that's never received that gift, it's a gift. And the gift comes through faith in Christ, Christ alone, grace alone, that they would receive that gift. If there's someone here that maybe are hurting and feeling because of that ache inside that we all have for our earthly father, the father wound. Maybe they, 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 they're feeling it, especially today on Father's Day. I pray that they would turn that ache to you, the father in heaven, and see you as a father with loving affection toward them. That we can cry out, Abba, Daddy. Not be in fear, not be gripped with shame or condemnation, but rather be embraced with that reality, that truth that we are loved by the father. So Lord, as we sing this song, help us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray.